0: G'day, and welcome to a Grad Chat, your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at Queen's. My name is CJ the DJ, and I am your host for this week's Grad Chat. Of course, a show like this could not happen without the support of the School of Graduate Studies and CFRC. So, thank you very much to both of them. Now, if your mates miss the show at any time, you can download the podcast the next day on either iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. So, no excuse not to hear what our awesome students and postdoctoral fellows are doing. Just as as a reminder, the clarity of the recording isn't quite as good as when we can do it in the studio. So, our apologies there but uh, we will do our best and uh, luckily we've got on today Yin, who also helps with all the editing for us each week so she's going to be getting it together as best she can with what we've got to offer so thank you Yin. So on that then I better introduce you to a group of students who formed a little group called Scholars of Colour at Watson Hall. So I'd like to introduce you to PhD students in English Language and Literature. We have Safa Musad, Jordan Lane and Suyin Olgin and a recent graduate from the, our history department, Dr. Ap- Pragita Sarkar. Welcome to Grad Chat, you guys. Thank, Thank you. you.
1: Thanks for having us.
0: Yeah. You're very welcome. And it's really nice to call one of you a doctor right now so well done. <laughs> and the, 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 th- the other three of you is not too far away for you either so looking forward to saying that to you. Before we actually talk about your group maybe you can each tell me a little bit about your history and how that has impacted some of the work that you've been doing. So Suyin do you want to get started?
2: All right so for me As you know, I worked on Victorian literature and food and masculinity in children's literature as well. So this group and the discussions and learning from my colleagues and the research has helped me understand and apply all of these concepts in my teaching and in my own research. So I have learned to have these discussions about race and empire and all of those politics to reintroduce new perspectives in how we read the depictions of the other in Victorian literature, the depiction of the racial other specifically. And in my own work with vampire literature, there are references to uh, their politics involved when it comes to that idea of heredity and the blood. And it is important for me to introduce these new perspectives that I have learned in my work with the group and from my colleagues to be able to expand that worldview and that translates for me in the classroom as well. I'm talk- when I taught my course on children's literature, I, one of the first discussions that we had was the depictions of India and depictions of, especially for a little princess, this perception of the other for 19th century audiences and that's what in discussions I had about my work with Aprajita ended up being really productive for both of us in our classes I don't know if you want to talk about that?
3: Yeah I realized that Suin's work resonates with the theme that I was teaching as part of my course on South Asia, which is Children of Empire and how a lot of colonized subjects were also seen as childlike, infantlike, truly rational to be proper citizens under the empire and I invited her to come and talk to the class Uh, it was a seminar of our peer undergrads and they really understood the the project of colonization through a very different lens a lens that I was not very familiar with myself which is through children's literature, through uh, Victorian literature and alphabet books that Suyin brought and in terms of disciplinary contact I really thought it was a very very good conversation between literature and history and together it, it just it was one of the best classes
2: in the entire semester so yay oh i have fun <laughs> but your class and your approach too helped me understand the depiction of masculinity in india and, and colonial masculinity and that also helped me understand and learn about the the politics and the relationship between india and, and britain during the time and onwards so it has really informed the way that I approach these depictions of India in my own classes. I can I can bring up that history that I learned from your class and your students. So that's great. Thank you.
0: That's fantastic. And what about you, Jordan? <laughs>
1: So I've had quite the experience throughout my degree. My research focuses on Caribbean literature. particularly some Jamaican novelists and the way they talk about religion and superstition and the way they explore that. But it's sort of developed as well into a, you know, a discussion, a, a lot of things that are affecting the world right now as well, right? So it's affecting like the Black Lives Matter movement, for example, things like that. They tie together a lot of different areas of, of discussion in my field, post-colonial studies, Black studies in literature. So that's my area. And I've managed to, to teach a lecture course on transnational way we understand not only the Black rights movement, but Black life in general, and the way it confuses and is impossible to 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 to, to hold down. And that unsettling nature of, of the vastness of Black culture is something I tried to address with my students in my course, English 271. So it's part of my life. It's part of my identity. It's part of my cultural identity. It's a part of the work that I do. And, you know, that was one of my my opportunities to interact there but we but there was also lots of other opportunities i had the chance to talk with a lot of other scholars in black studies and in, in religious studies and i also guest lectured for uh, for a religious studies class so there's a lot of connections that can be drawn here
0: That's fantastic that's really really good and what about you safa so my my
4: research is interested in muslim youth and their identity construction And particularly the Muslim youth of the 1.5 and second generation, so children of immigrants. I'm looking particularly at this group of, or at this generation, because they grew up in the shadow of 9 11. So they don't know a world prior to that. And then 9 11, of course, instigated the global war on terror, which is still ongoing. And that generated anti racist and Islamophobic rhetoric, which is again still ongoing. And it dictates the way Muslims and Muslim communities have been discussed on mainstream media. So how have these young children who are now developing their own identities and in their process of maturation, how are they dealing with that with getting that constant scrutinized political and social gaze? So I'm interested in the ways that they have been uh, forming and shaping their identity and how these very limiting categories that they're allowed, how have they been able to circumvent that? So what what I'm finding is that there's actually been a very like a growing trend in uh, cultural production from all areas so traditionally from novels and poetry but then also spoken word poetry stand-up comedy tv shows and using internet and social media platforms to counter stereotypes that are imposed on them in a way that is liberating and that is trying to shed the the categories that are imposed on them. So what I'm essentially trying to look at is how the reductive stereotype of the terrorist or the oppressed women is reformulated in their art and instead replaced with the figure of the young Muslim or Muslim youth who is who embraces their modernity, who embraces their hybridity, who embrace their religion, but also embrace their existence within North America, within in the US and Canada. So That's fantastic. Fantastic.
0: That's really, really good. Now, as we know, this year has not been a particularly good one. I mean, 2020 is going to be quite memorable or one of those we want to forget. You know, we've had bushfires, we've had plane crashes, COVID-19, and now, of course, these protests against racism and and discrimination in all its forms. So university students around the world have also been joining in the protests, but they're also those students who are making a stance in in other ways. And that is why I wanted to chat with members of Scholars with Colour to find out a bit more about their group about their own academic research and their experiences of being graduate students of color. So my understanding is first of all that the that who you are is kind of like a community of grad students of color in the department of history, english language and literature, philosophy and classics at Watson Hall at Queen's University and Watson Hall is where those programs are housed. Can one of you tell me how did your association come about and what are the circumstances that motivated you to create a group for graduate students of color in academia? I can take this.
3: The initial reasons were entirely selfish. We were sick of being the only people representing our entire communities, the whole one billion of them in our department. And so Watson Hall is where all the humanities are housed, English, philosophy, history. I met Suyin and Jordan, and then eventually Safa through, in, through these like academic events, like boot camps. And so we discussed issues of race, color, identity, even though I, it, it, they weren't part of my work initially. And uh, we decided we need to do something more institutional about it. We need to do some long term changes in those immediate departments. And one of the ways to do that was just to set up a group. And then Suyin and Jordan are both, okay, well, Suyin is better at uh, just setting up things and getting things done. Right. And so, and we just followed the lead. She's like, okay, let's, let's, we have this group now. Let's, let's just contact AMS. Let's get that done. And that was done. And Lena was also there from history at the time she's graduated, and so we are all upper year PhDs who were a little lost. We were a little just tired of being on our own in that sense, and came together for me at least for very selfish reasons. And then I, I'm amazed at the kind of institutional imprints that we have made within the few, barely like within one year of existence.
0: It's, well, that's that's always a good reason sometimes, right? And we have to do it by what our guts are telling us, saying, "Well, this isn't available, so let Let's do it for ourselves can I ask what is the background of everybody and why you why you think you need to be a part of this group or you felt you needed a group like this
4: well for me I have been at Queen's for basically all of my degrees but undergrad and, and graduate experience are, are just completely different in graduate school mm-hmm. there's obviously that you know pressure of you know academia and, and, and scholarly work and all of that but then not being in an environment that the yeah completely I guess embraces you or or even acknowledges your existence can be very detrimental to a to our work and our progress and to our just own self-worth and and mental health. So in our departments we went through the cohorts and we found that each cohort has basically one or two like person or people of color. And that can be very alienating and and, you know sometimes it's it's not intentional. It's not always intentional, but it can Mm -hmm. be very alienating. So for me, when I was in, I think it was probably second year of my PhD. I had known um, Suyin. You know, we had a friend in common, and we our friendship developed really quickly and she was you know a great mentor to me and the fact that we both voiced these experiences it was the first time where somebody other than ourselves validated the fact that we do experience these alienation and being put to the margins at that time there were certain things happening around our department where Others were speaking for us rather than speaking mm-hmm. to us about certain issues that are about people of color or scholars of color. So anyway, these kind of kinds of conversations just generated organically. And Suyin and I spoke with uh, Shelley King, who was the head of English of the English department at the time, who is honestly a wonderful, wonderful and supportive human being. And she encouraged us to form this group so that the incoming cohorts and and the succeeding cohorts don't feel that sort of way so that they come in and then they have this community already set up that is, you know, ready to embrace them.
0: Right. Uh, So you talk about this alienation. Are you talking about alienation as a graduate student? graduate student in general? Because we always have this thing the say, Queens is very undergrad centric, even though they are trying to say that. And we all know how important the grad student it is. Or is the alienation more of, as you said, your voice as a grad student, but a grad student of color is not heard in the same way?
4: Definitely both. There's always that just... I guess it just seems like it's the just the natural or normal thing that graduate students, in a way, it's sometimes even self-inflicted. We self-isolate because we're very dedicated and we're just you know put our heads yes. in the book and we're just you know. But then there is definitely that added degree of, like a project I said, being the only person representing your community. Yeah,
0: right. And so, what sorts of conversations would you like to initiate through your initiative of this?
1: I think I can take I can take this one I think the group has a very open perspective it has so we have so many different members with so many different concerns from their from their own perspective as individual scholars but also from their national perspective or their their international perspective right but the kind of conversations that I think we we want to 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 get started are, are conversations about uh, about what makes uh, someone feel included in their in their departments what right? Uh, what are the areas that willingly or, or unwillingly or, or on purpose or not on purpose, where those areas of exclusion exist and, you know, and, and how we can help break them down? I think those are the sort of conversations that we have. And we, we want to do that in whatever whatever way we can. But it's also something that we're doing naturally as graduate students, right, as mm-hmm. Right, researchers and as, as, as teachers and as, as scholars. These exclusions and inclusions that we're sort of negotiating and breaking down in a more abstract sense, we're also trying to do that in a, in a very practical, you know, a, a literal sense. I guess it's also a, a question of visibility, right? Where we're sort of making ourselves visible and our visibility assures people not only that we are very capable and we are very straight, you know, and we do have uh, a, an eye towards what, what needs fixing for us, but also that these problems exist. I mean- We work in spite of them and we work you know better you know Mm -hmm. yeah yeah. but go on can
0: can i ask a question that may not be that easy to answer but can you give me can someone give me an example of a time when there was a discussion going on say in in your program but -hmm. you didn't feel like you were included and i'm assuming that's what we're talking about here your voice you're wanting to have your voice included in the conversation your voice as a individual person Mm. but also as a different perspective because of your cultural background perhaps Mm -hmm. or because of your color and all those other things that come into play so can is there a is is there a simple example that someone can give me I do have an example that kind of struck with me and it wasn't even just me who thought that it was
4: my fellow cohort one of the courses that we have to take is like a pass-fail kind of graduate learning course where each week a speaker from the university comes and tells us, you know, conferencing about publications, things like that. And then one -hmm. one of the classes we got the HR department to send two of their people to talk to us about uh, diversity and inclusion in the classroom as sort of training for when we uh, run tutorials. Right. We all found that just the approach was probably very theoretical didn't actually talk about how to talk about differences rather than just it was a blanket statement of how to over go over that and like despite Mm -hmm. the differences how to discuss like run classrooms and speak with students and one of the exercises that we had to do was write on a paper what did a professor do in your class that made you feel included but I thought it was better to talk about what actually are the things that because microaggressions are very real and sometimes it's not, you know, people are not cognizant sometimes when they're, mm-hmm. you know, subtle subtle remarks that actually are offensive to somebody. So right. I raised my hand and I said, well, I think, I think we should actually talk about what are some things that make a person feel alienated or excluded. And the person who was running the training, obviously me being a visible minority, a visible person of color... She turned it back to me and she said, well, what about you? What are some things that you found, like, that you found were excluding and alienating to you? Putting me in the spot in front of all of you know, my peers, which I thought, I thought right. was, not, <laughs> was not great. And then once everybody went and answered, she looked at me and she kind of tilted her head and was like, are you satisfied with that answer? <laughs> which I thought was just, you know, not a great way to tackle these kinds of conversations.
0: Right. I think in one way they had the right intentions, but maybe the delivery wasn't quite the way it should be. And I think that's a big thing about a lot of what's going on, now. Sometimes it's not that people intentionally want to exclude or anything like that, but sometimes not always sure how to go about it. And so, you know, people do reach out and say, how can I do this better? And And I think the fact that you guys have put this group together, provide a community that you can talk to each other, you know, with your peers uh, and try and, and sort some things out as well as, hopefully teaching others in, in a more subtle, perhaps a subtle way, I don't know. I guess that comes to the question of you know, what are the short-term and long-term goals that you've got for, for the group? Because it's one thing talking amongst each other and providing support for each other, but do you want it to go further than that? I think that
2: this question is great because it ties back together to what we've been discussing in terms of where we started and this idea of what are our goals and what have we done, or what has the group done already, not just to support each other, but also to educate and to mm-hmm. amplify the voices of scholars of color. I think that's one of the goals of the group is to ensure that we provide a, a space where discussion can happen and respectfully but we also want to invite the community and to train or to offer advice on how to approach how to help because it it gets very confusing very broadly or generalizing that idea of allyship or that idea of what can we do and we forget that that feeling of alienation comes from microaggressions which are very subtle and you internalize them so one of the first initiatives from our group was to have a little workshop for faculty in our department talk about what microaggressions look like, most specifically racial microaggressions, and how we cannot just generalize the approach to mental health as if it affects everybody the same way. So we also talked about how to identify what can we do to help students of color deal with mental health because there is stigma, but there's also more cultural stigma for certain students when it comes to mental health. So we facilitated those discussions and what helped, I think, and Safa brought up the support from our head and Dr. King, It was about giving us the voice and giving, uh, helping us convey those messages ourselves, teaching us the tools rather than speaking for us. I think that is very important. The support can come from supporting our own voices,
0: but empowering you, empowering you to do it yourself. Exactly, and not not hoping someone else is going to do it for you.
2: Exactly. So that was how we started. In in short-term goals, were to provide workshops, and our group has offered several workshops for uh, students in Watson Hall. Right. But in the long term, is to provide that space and to create something that leads up to expanding that help in the community at Queen's. And somebody, mm-hmm. you want to talk about um, those the, the funding ideas that we have discussed as a group that would be something we're looking forward to in the future? Group.
0: Right. And this funding, are you, are you hoping to sort of raise funds yourself or ask the ask queens to see if they can put something together to help you get that going or to put forward an opportunity for another bursary or something like that? We were lucky to be mm-hmm. got funding for the first year
3: with the uh, inclusive community fund. Yeah, so shout out to whoever gave us money. Yay. But uh, yeah. not sure if we get it like next year too, but yes, that would be something that we'd keep applying to that fund. We need to also raise funds ourselves, autonomous from Queens, because I guess that's that'll just give us a little bit more autonomy when it comes to some of the issues that we can raise. I'm just going to give back as an example of the kind of g- gaps that we are tr- trying to fill. When I joined in 2014, the kind of TF training and TA training that we got was, how do you handle a student? How do you handle a, a controversial subject? Da, 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 da. It did not prepare me to be the only person of color in the classroom or maybe have like right. one more student or perhaps another Chinese student or, or, or a black student. And that's it in like probably the first person of instructor of color that many students would have had my really accent, cool. my entire the, the t- tension that I might have in terms of like whether they're actually listening to me, whether they're respecting authority, all those questions never answered. So one of the first things that we did, and w- which was hugely popular, was the anti-racism workshop as, as a, and giving students tools to handle a race as a topic, but also right. uh, how to handle tense conversations around identity, how to handle a disrupted student, and also how to be a, a more confident uh, instructor or a TA, when it comes to, uh, if, you, if you if you face issues of color, identity in front of you, or, or even gender. Yes, right. So that that right. workshop was a huge success. And it was a one-off for the history department in 2018. In 2019, we, as a group, sort of organized it again. And right. hopefully by next year, which is like this fall, if things turn out fine, it should be something that should be routinized within English mm-hmm. and history at least, if not
0: philosophy. Well, that's great. I mean, to, to me, that's a, a great way of your group, like you said before, you're there to support each other, but also to help educate. And and if you can bring to the fore these sorts of workshops or classes that you, you need yeah. to help help you also in your own work, that's fantastic. And I, I take my hat off to you to putting it forward for, for particularly your two programs to start with, and then it can go further from there. Thank you. Thank you, yeah. It's just
2: important to really mention that th- those funds, the Queens Inclusive Community Fund and all of those available opportunities for these type of projects were very mm-hmm. helpful for us To We got departmental support as well, but those funds were used specifically for the purpose of educating, creating these workshops, opening them up, having that community community not just in the educational part, but also in the social part and providing that space for new students, for international students, for students of color. Those funds really help groups like ours to be able to open up these opportunities for everybody in and create these spaces because
1: otherwise we would have had to we would have had to advertise our own fundraiser even before the, the creation of the group right we would have to advertise right. our own fundraising have our, have our own events and there would be there would have been so many more headaches mm-hmm. had we not received this uh, the extra important bursary and it's pretty important that these bursaries exist and that we sort of encourage their their continued existence because they help shore up areas that the university can't necessarily help in or can't necessarily see you know?
0: well you're right and these initiative funds I like to call them the initiative funds and some of them are actually call that are, are for exactly this because we know our student population has some great ideas but they just need a little bit of support to get things started and then they can take it from there and you've clearly shown that in your group with you know a couple of initiative awards and things that you've been rece- that you've received that you've been able to do so much already just in one year I, I guess the next question then is has your your group faced any obstacles in its inception?s
1: I can answer that a little bit I think that the one of the major obstacles for for any sort of organized group in the university is the, the actual act of organization right and it actually takes a it actually, takes quite a, a bit of time to get a unit, a group unit, sort of acting like a group. And we're still, we're still working through quite a few of the kinks. You know, I'm, I have some experience with that. I was the uh, international student affairs commissioner for the SGPS a few a few years ago. I had to work from scratch to sort of develop uh, a blueprint for this for this group, and it was a long process. And it was it, there were quite a few headaches, and that's what happens when you start a group it's not you don't just start it and it goes you have to put quite a bit of considerable effort in and planning and sometimes it doesn't pan out the way you want right at the beginning but it needs time to grow and develop and i think that we're, what we're doing is we're giving it the the right nutrition to do that for a group like this to to, to, mm-hmm. to grow and develop
2: because we're working in infrastructure designed for undergraduate student groups but there's very little That's support for graduate student groups like ours.
1: Yeah, I mean we we you know we're we're sort of tied to the AMS, right? The
2: AMS, yes.
1: Um and doesn't have its own apparatus for, for, for dealing with student groups. So we use right. the AMS, the AMS sort of model, but there's still we're still learning the shape of what this group is, and you know where it's going to go, and what's it going when it's going to do. So it's it's exciting, but it's also a little bit. There's always going to be challenges to well, know, what, one
0: one of, one of the challenges I would imagine you've already thought about is succession because you're all towards mm-hmm. the end of your PhD, and of course, Epigena is all, already concluded or finished, defended. Um, so have you thought about that in your planning of who takes over once you've graduated? To be honest, I am worried about the mental overload people mm-hmm. of color, students of color already face. If I, I'm an international
3: student, I already have that worry uh, financial, uh, um, they're trying to finish on time with a closed library. So I have, for instance, not been able to mobilize that many people in history. They come for the event they know the group exists but for them to take an entirely like this this the the role of of actually coming up create with events creating posters creating a timeline i'm a little worried and in the long term we need to think about mental health and are we overburdening ourselves with the kind of labor that we are assuming that we can do for this group. Like for me, the group was therapeutic. It may not be for another student. It may be that they don't, they just don't have the mental capacity right now to think about Mm -hmm. something. So we have also had periods where I'm just like I can't I can't do anything right now I'll get back to you and i'm hoping that students will mobilize themselves and come in when they feel the need so that's my belief and as of now Safa is there holding for and uh, Jordan- <laughs> <laughs> we- <laughs> i just have to find one person from history to take it out
0: yeah yes okay oh guys sorry we're gonna have to call it quits because as we know we've come to the end it's been awesome chatting with you all so Safa Jordan Sue Naprajita thank you so much for coming onto the show I really do appreciate it and I just want to say best of luck with the continuance of your group Scholars of Colour in Watson Hall because I think that is fantastic what you've been doing and I'd like to see it keep going so well done to all of you on that so that's it everyone another week of grad chat sadly comes to an end don't forget you can download the show tomorrow from either iTunes Google Podcasts, or Stitcher Just type in a grad chat. Until next week, this is CJ the DJ signing off with a big hooray.